in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome to this week's Nature Podcast, where we'll be trying to demystify the complex subject of topology. My head hurts already in anticipation. Plus, we'll find out what determines how fast animals are. Oh yeah, what does determine how fast animals are? We'll find out. This is the Nature Podcast for July the 20th, 2017. I'm Shamni Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. One word in particular has been echoing around Nature Towers this week. Topology. Topology is the mathematical study of shapes, but it isn't just a subject for pure mathematicians. It's helping physicists understand bizarre behaviours in all sorts of materials. Last year's Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded for work in this field. And this week, Nature is publishing two research papers and a feature on the subject. But what exactly is topology? And why is it useful? The more I've been asking that question, the more confused I've become. It turns out that I'm not the only one. Topology is a notoriously complex and difficult concept. To add to the confusion, physicists and mathematicians think about topology in very different ways. Even so, thinking in terms of abstract shapes hidden in some materials is helping physicists to describe new states of matter. So, we're dedicating a good chunk of this week's podcast to getting a handle on the topic of topology. To help me make sense of it all, I'm joined in the studio by not one, but two physics geeks. Davide Castelvecchi has just written a feature on the topic, so if he can't help us, no one can. Hello, Davide. Hello. And to help explain, we are also joined by physics reporter Lizzie Gibney. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Adam. Lizzie, how confident are you feeling about explaining topology? Um, I think I would do an all right job of describing what we are talking about when it comes to the mathematical side of topology. Um, I could also give some good examples as to where topology is relevant in physics. Um, I would say the line between the two is a lot harder and the kind of thing that um, I'm very happy Davide has taken on in this feature. Davide, is that the stuff that you were previously unsure of, the link between the maths and the physics? And was that where you had to brush up for writing this feature? Absolutely. And I think that brush up is uh, a kind and uh, <laughs> understated way of putting it. It took several months of uh, remedial lessons from our colleagues, the manuscript editors, uh, not only of Nature, but uh, of all the Nature journals that... Um, help me understand and navigate this field. And I think that uh, maybe Lizzie remembers when the Nobel Prizes uh, last year were announced, the the terrified look in our face when we exchanged. uh, Because it was a topic that obviously we had heard about and read about a lot. It's it's one of the hottest trends in physics, these, these topological materials. And um, I had never really understood what that meant. And so um, it was kind of the, you know, the worst possible topic to have to explain on deadline the day that 
the bells are announced. And you had to write that together. How, how long did you have? So, yeah, it's, it's annoying that every year the Physics Nobel is announced on a Tuesday morning and we go to press at Tuesday lunchtime. Uh, so we usually get about, I would say, an hour and a half to write the piece and then there's about an hour and a half for it to be edited and sub-edited and then go into print. To put that scramble into some context, I, th- I think this, for many people, might have been the first time they heard about topology. And, well, this is what they would have heard if they were listening to the announcement. So I brought my lunch. Here you see, it's a cinnamon bun. Here I have another thing. I have a bagel, okay? And here I have a pretzel. Now, for us, you know, these things are very different. But if you are a topologist, it's only one thing that is really interesting with these things. The number of holes. Davide, what did you make of this explanation? Well, it felt like they were waving their hands and not really... uh, I mean, they were describing um, a topological idea that I was very familiar with. How that applied to uh, states of matter was completely obscure. We should say that it wasn't just hand wavy figuratively. He was literally waving his hands yeah. around while holding these these objects in them. Um, so now you've been given a few months to think about it. What would your explanation be for what the award was for? The the Nobels uh, rewarded the study of uh, new and unexpected states of matter. Where, uh, where the properties of the state of matter are determined by uh, some topological effects. And the way that topology pops up is in, the, in these abstract spaces made of energy levels of the electrons in the material. So when we say topological effects, are we saying that these donuts and pretzels are somehow appearing in solid objects? What are we physically saying is going on? Absolutely, there are there are donuts and pretzels in solid objects, except that they are not physically in the object. They are in this abstract space made of energy levels. That describes the object. I think this is why this subject goes from being something that I can think about quite easily, like a donut or a pretzel, to something that is more difficult, because it's so close to being something tangible, and then you say the words... It exists in an abstract space. Um, When we talk about phases of matter or states of matter, there are some where it's very easy. It's something like a solid, a crystal, and uh, you, you have this order which is in space. Everyone can see that. Everyone knows what's going on. When you have something like a magnet, it's about the ordering of the spins of the atoms. You can't see it, but they are all, they have some kind of association, and we call that a different kind of phase. That's magnetic. You have something like a liquid. Um, or at least a quantum liquid, and it's really not obvious. It looks like everything's going everywhere. But actually, you might have some order you can't see in terms of there might be order in the momentum with which all of these different particles are moving. So when I think about topological uh, effects, topological order, it's about some kind of property that, like the direction of spins in a magnet, unites a material But it's something that is very abstract, which is kind of a a hidden kind of order. Um, And then what's interesting about it for physicists is that if you have this particular kind of order, um, it's very useful because it's very, very hard to change from that state to another one. When I was reading your feature, Davide, I found the example of the electron and the Mobius strip pretty intriguing. A Mobius strip is like a ring made out of paper with a half twist in it. 
Um, so if you start on the outside of the ring and you go around once, you find yourself on the inside of the ring. Now, what does that have to do with electrons? So the fact that when you uh, take the spin um, of an electron and you make it go around a full circle, the electron doesn't come back to the same state and instead it has its wave function, this mathematical object that expresses its quantum state becomes flipped. And you have to rotate the electron all around once more to take it back to the original place. And this is, um, there, there is actually topology in there in the quantum state of the electron. There is a, a little Möbius strip that does this. And the idea is the, the quantum state gets flipped just the way that an ant crawling all around a Möbius strip finds itself upside down and then it has to crawl all around once more to find itself at the same place. And, and the thing is, when we're talking about an electron, that's a, a system that physicists understand very well and can describe um, ad infinitum. But when we are talking about uh, much bigger systems, then thinking about them in terms of their topology becomes very, very useful because it might not be as easy to describe as a single electron. So an example of a more complicated phenomenon that topology helps explain is topological insulators, materials that don't conduct electricity except on their surface. How does topology end up being useful to describe materials like this? And is it to do with baked goods? The one way in which I think uh, the, the pretzels and the donuts and everything were useful, or could have been useful maybe if, if used a bit better, is topologically speaking, a bowl is the same as a plate, right? So you can deform one into the other. There are an awful lot of things about this system we just don't care about. It's actually a very simplistic way of describing it. There are a few key things that are important, but lots of others aren't. So you can just stretch, deform it, twist it, but you cannot put a hole in it. Um, that gives you a sense of when we are talking then about some kind of topological phase, how it, it takes a, an awful lot to change from one topological phase to another. And what if, if you're trying to store information, say, in that phase? That can be really useful because in that case you can do an awful lot to that system and you're still not going to lose that information. That information is only lost um, in this example if you somehow manage to punch a hole through it. And is that robustness the only reason that physicists care about topology? I wouldn't say it's the only reason. I would say that's the reason why um, there seem to then there may be quite a few interesting applications of it. What do you think of the things to watch out for in topology? Either new applications that might come to fruition or whole new fundamental physics? Yeah, so what Lizzie was just describing about um, robustness of information. So this is one of the, the hottest or most exciting potential applications is the idea of quantum bits and the idea of doing uh, building a quantum computer where uh, you could do certain, you could run certain quantum, quantum algorithms that can do things that ordinary computers can't do or can only do very slowly. There's, there's multiple approaches to building a quantum computer, but the, the biggest problem is that these, um, the, the information stored in these quantum bits or qubits is typically very fragile. And in principle, these topological states could lead to building quantum computers that are, that are easier or simpler to manage. 
There are two topology papers out this week by different groups. One is looking at an exotic material that looks like it's breaking a conservation law of physics. And Davide, what's the second paper focused on? This team has looked at these, uh, th- this basically catalogue of possible crystals and said, based on the symmetry, we know that there is potentially a topological state of matter in, in any material that, that uh, has this structure. So it's kind of telling people where to look for these topological phenomena? Yes, exactly. And, and, and experimentalists seem to be quite excited because it could be a shortcut to discovering many more, potentially thousands of new topological materials. Even more complex than pretzels? Potentially, yes. Thank you, Davide Kastelvecki and Lizzie Gibney, for helping me find my way around this bemusing but interesting subject a little better. If this has given you a taste for topology, do make sure to check out Davide's feature at nature.com forward slash news, as well as the two new topology papers there at nature.com forward slash nature. Still to come, we're taking a look at the state of the climate in the news chat, featuring accelerating sea level rise and how France is wooing US climate scientists. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights. Sea spiders have been harbouring a secret. Well, besides not being actual spiders. These crustacean pretenders use their guts to pump their blood-like fluid. The crabby critters do still have hearts, but it seems these aren't pumping down their long limbs. Fortunately, the spider's sprawling guts have taken on that extra legwork. Researchers studied respiration in a range of sea spider species. They found that the guts, which branch out into the spider's legs, were pulsating. These gut contractions get the oxygen all around the beast's entire body. And if that isn't weird enough, sea spiders breathe in through their legs. Dive into that respiration revelation now at Current Biology. In the ongoing arms race between bacteria and viruses, some bacteria invented a system called CRISPR-Cas9 to chop up viral DNA. In response, some viruses invented CRISPR-inhibiting proteins to defend themselves. These days, scientists use CRISPR to snip particular bits of DNA, and it's become a game-changing gene-editing technique. But now, researchers are turning to CRISPR-inhibiting proteins to help improve their gene-editing accuracy. An anti-CRISPR protein, which usually prevents CRISPR-Cas9 from targeting DNA, is added to the system after the gene-editing has begun. This reduces the number of CRISPR cuts in the wrong parts of the DNA. Read more on this cutting-edge find in Science Advances. At the 2016 Rio Olympics, Usain Bolt continued his winning spree and won three gold medals. Seeing him tower over his competitors, you could be forgiven for wondering whether his size was key to his victory. If you managed to get a good look at him before he whizzed off into the distance, that is. But bigger doesn't always mean faster, especially across the whole animal kingdom. If it did... Cheetahs racing across the savannah would find themselves being overtaken by high-speed elephants, and blue whales would be zooming through the oceans, outswimming pretty much everything. Biologists have puzzled over what determines animals' maximum speeds for decades, but none have yet come up with an explanation that works on land, in water and in flight. Now, Miriam Heert and her team seem to have had a eureka moment and created a model that works for everything. Well, almost. 
Reporter Jeff Marsh was brought up to speed. This question about what limits an animal's top speed—it's funny because it sort of seems like a really simple question, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a really simple question, and surprisingly, the answer is also really simple. So generally, then, when we when we look at animals as they get bigger, they tend to get faster. That's a general principle. Yeah, that was the general principle because in ecology, I think we first of all always think of things increase or decrease continuously with body mass. And with maximum speed,、um, people already came across this phenomenon that the largest species、um, tend to get slower again. It's sort of intuitive why the smallest animals are slower, you know, because they've got shorter legs, fins, wings, or flippers. But what have been the previous theories for why the biggest animals are not the fastest? Most of the times, it was、uh, morphologically or biomechanically explained. So, if an elephant were to run as fast as a cheetah, proportional to its body size, it would just break its own legs with the force of hitting the ground. Yeah. What's wrong with that theory? I think it just doesn't、um, explain the pattern very well. So you can't predict maximum speeds correctly with that, which our model can. Let's just try and visualize this for our listeners. If you've got body size plotted against maximum speed, what does the curve look like? So the maximum speed increases from the smallest animals to the intermediately sized ones. So this is the size class of the cheetah, and then the speed starts to decrease again. Right. So it's sort of like an upside down U. Yeah. You and your team then have tried to create a mathematical model which can explain the shape of that curve, basically, and then go on to predict animals' top speeds. The important point is that larger animals need more time to accelerate their larger body to high speeds, and at the moment that they get up to full speed, they already run out of energy. So if they had infinitely、uh, time available to accelerate, then they could reach the theoretical possible maximum speed, which would be faster than the intermediately sized animals. It's so striking that、um, you've come up with this very sort of. Basic idea, and we've been thinking about this question for—is it centuries? Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> Were you in the bath? Was this a eureka moment? What happened? No, it was not in the bath. <laughs> it was just、um, when we're standing in front in the whiteboard. <laughs> very important moment, but not very spectacular. <laughs> the other nice thing about this model is that it works for. Animals flying in the air and swimming in the in water as well. Is that is this the first model that manages to encapsulate all of these different modalities of of movement? Yes, it is. So yeah, we compiled a really large database. It contains more than four hundred and fifty species. We then fitted our model predictions to that, and so it fitted perfectly, <laughs> which surprised us. And I also included swimming and flying animals, and then I realized that this、uh, pattern also holds for the other movement types, so which makes it even more interesting. But there are outliers, aren't there? Because one, one jumped out at me, and that was us. You know, we as humans sort of sit in the real peak of this body mass range, where we should actually be almost at cheetah level. But good luck to anyone who tries to outrun a big cat. But I think it kind of makes sense because we're just not adapted for high speed movement because there's no need to. 
So I guess this model then is is interesting because it raises interesting questions when a species sort of deviates from that pattern. Yeah, exactly. So we can, with the positive deviations, we can see, for example, um, coevolution between predator and prey, or um, yeah, negative deviations. Um, it just shows that there is no need to develop high speed movement. Now that you've got this model, I suppose that it's also going to be useful for paleontologists, for example. They, they can go back and ask questions about the movement capabilities of long extinct species. Yeah, that's the uh, one cool part about our model, that it also makes adequate predictions of maximum speeds of dinosaurs, for example. Yeah, because there's always been a big debate raging about T-Rex, hasn't there? Like how fast was yeah. Tyrannosaurus Rex? So our model would predict the maximum speed of 27 kilometers per hour so it's not that fast right okay so they'd have to update that scene in the first jurassic park definitely <laughs> but um i think the smaller ones velociraptors they are um really fast so <laughs> you should probably not try to run away from them that won't work <laughs> That was Miriam Hirt at the German Centre for Integrative Biodiversity Research in Leipzig, Germany, talking to Jeff Marsh. That paper's in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. Find it, plus the news and views, at nature.com forward slash nat evil. Finally this week, we're joined by another Jeff for the news chat. It's Jeff Tollefson, Nature's climate reporter from New York. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Adam. Now, firstly... Sea levels are going up, there's no big news there. But we now understand the rates of sea level rise much clearer than we did before. What was actually holding us back from seeing this picture? So we've only learned about this problem recently. We've had this record for 25 years and scientists have been looking at it and for a long time they really couldn't see any acceleration in the rate of sea level rise, um, which you know, raises kind of some questions because we've got more heat going into the ocean, we've got more greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere. The original satellite that went up to uh, begin taking measurements of sea levels in 1992, it had two sensors on it. And we switched over from um, from one sensor to the other in, uh, in 1999. What scientists have now determined is that there was a calibration on that uh, first sensor that was applied. And uh, once they removed that calibration, then you could begin to see this acceleration um, in, in the rate of sea level rise between 1992 and today. So does this correction bring things much closer in line with what we'd expect from other sources of data? That's exactly right. I mean, there, there were a few papers out there um, several years ago that said, you know, if you look at the rate of sea level rise in the 1990s, um, in the early years, and then you look at the rate later, they, they showed, you know, perhaps even a decline in the rate of sea level rise, which is a bit of a mystery. Two teams tackled this with different approaches over the last uh, two, three years, and uh, those teams raised questions. They said, you know, looking at the tide gauges, we would expect to see a sea level, uh, an acceleration of sea level rise. And another team looked at, basically, it took a budget approach. They looked at all of the uh, sources of sea level rise, from expanding water due to uh, heat uptake to uh, you know, melt from Greenland and Antarctica. And when they added these things up, they saw an acceleration that wasn't visible in, in the, the satellite record. So that led the, you know, a team of scientists to start looking at what was wrong with the record. And once they discovered this calibration, 
then all of a sudden the the acceleration rate became more apparent. It must be kind of an I told you so moment for those groups who are saying there must be something wrong with this satellite data. Well, I suppose so, but I think uh, I think the bigger issue here is now we've got multiple groups coming at it from multiple angles and they're all coming to the same conclusion. So it sounds like we've kind of resolved this uh, minor mystery in the climate world. And in terms of what we now understand is happening with sea levels, how, how rapid is this acceleration? Well, so there are still some uncertainties. Um, you know, we, we can't say precisely, but if you look at the, at the central values, what we see is a, a rise from 1.9 millimeters in 1993 to 3.9 millimeters um, in 2016. Um, and that... That calculation also requires removing other kind of confounding factors, and that's where some of the uncertainty comes in. And is the expectation that this acceleration will continue into the future? Well, we don't know. Um, the way it was described to me is that this is probably, you know, it's probably safe to think about this as kind of a floor. Um, if you project forward over 100 years, you get 75 centimeters of sea level rise. And, you know, maybe we can think about that as a, as a likely minimum. Um, nobody sees why you'd see a deceleration of, uh, of sea level rise um, unless we, you know, we being humanity, substantially reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But, you know, if things continue as normal, you would expect that to kind of continue. So the question, you know, looking out many decades is whether you'll see a sudden acceleration of melting in, say, Greenland or West Antarctica or even East Antarctica. Um, if you get a big change in, uh, in the rate of ice melt in those areas, then it could be even larger. A lot of future climate research is now in, in doubt because of uh, changes to the U.S. administration. But President Macron of France is trying quite hard to woo climate scientists over across the Atlantic. And it seems like it's working. Um, yeah, so President Macron has, uh, has created a 60 million euro plan to basically fund some scientists and lure scientists from other countries to, to France. Um, and uh, apparently the way this works is you can get uh, grants up to four years worth up to 1.5 million euros. Um, that's a substantial sum of money, and apparently they are uh, attracting quite a bit of interest from the U.S. and presumably other countries. Um, I, I guess the question here is, you know, whether this is an anti-Trump vote by U.S. scientists who opt to apply for this program, or whether it's a pro-opportunity type of choice. There's always limited funding in science. If you throw up um, a new program that has a bunch of money, scientists are going to pursue that. And this is a very international sphere, and, uh, and probably you've got a lot of scientists who would be more than happy to go and, and uh, pursue a big opportunity in France. How many scientists can they actually hire through this scheme, and how many people are applying? Uh, well, it, it, it sounds like they've got uh, uh, 4,500 applications in so far. Apparently the goal is to winnow that down to around 50 winners. Um, and I guess that decision will be will be made later this year in, in November. Is France really as research friendly as this makes it seem? This makes it sort of seem like a utopia for troubled American researchers. Yeah, well, that's the irony. And, uh, and some French scientists have have uh, have homed in on exactly that point. 
um, at the same time that they're proposing this uh, this big program to lure people from outside, uh, the French government is also proposing to uh, scale back funding for research and higher education at home. So one way to look at this is that it's really kind of about optics, um, and perhaps it's just a poke in the eye of the Trump administration. Um, because if France isn't funding science at home, then it's hard to make the case that they're really serious about uh, advancing research and development. And it's not a huge number of climate scientists that they will be able to hire. Is is there any hope for American climate scientists who don't make it onto this French program? Well, I, I, I think American climate scientists just have a big question mark um, hanging over their heads right now. Probably the majority are going to try and stick it out here. And the question that we can't answer at this point is what the budgets are going to look like going forward for climate research, um, for energy R&D, but it's entirely possible and perhaps even likely that budgets are going to go down. Um, and that does signal bad news for the, uh, for the research community. Thank you, Jeff. To keep up with all things climate and, of course, all other science news, make sure to head to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week, but make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Nature Podcast. Or if you want more personal tweets, I'm at Espundel. And my witterings can be found at Climate Adam. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. 